Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So today we're going to be talking with a friend of the show, Stephen Hyden, who wrote a book called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, that will be out really soon. And it gets into the idea of classic rock and what it was like to be a classic rock fan in the 80s and 90s, which is a phenomenon that was very widespread and kind of seldom commented upon and also traces the current state of classic rock, which inevitably, due to the passage of time, is uh, somewhat altered. And I think we have uh, right now, Stephen, hello. Hello, how's it going, Brian? Pretty good. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So what was the germ of the idea for doing this book? Well, uh, about five years ago, I saw The Who on the Quadrophenia tour. And before I say anything else, I just want to say that I really like the show. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of The Who. I uh, bought Quadrophenia on cassette when I was 14. It was a very important record for me, as much as, like, Nevermind was or Pearl Jam 10, like any of the big 90s alt-rock records. Uh, but when I was at that show, you know, as much as I enjoyed it, I couldn't help but notice that these guys are getting advanced in years. You know, they've, they've got maybe about 140 years between them or so. And, you know, that, that's obviously not a very original observation. Uh, obviously, I knew that Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey are getting a little bit older, but it just started getting me thinking about the mortality of classic rock stars. Uh, which is something I hadn't really thought about before. Like when I was growing up, these people were almost like Marvel superheroes. You know, they they seemed immortal. I I, did, I couldn't think of them ever getting older or or passing away. So I started thinking about it at that point. And then a few years later, in 2016, I, it really seemed to become more of a cultural concern. Like when David Bowie passed away, Prince passed away. And now we've had Tom Petty, Greg Allman, a bunch of other people. It seems to be more the front of mind uh, for a lot of people. So at that point, it, it became something that I think seem more essential to write. So that's, that's when I started working on it. The funny thing is someone like Pete Townsend in 1990 was, you know, he, he, was, he was still a young man, you know, and back then people were thinking of him as quite old, you know, uh, he was 45 in 1990. <laughs> and if, right. if you remember, I mean, he was considered an old man of rock then, which is truly bizarre. I mean, Eddie Vedder is older than that now. So the, the chronology is somehow there's something off, right, in the way we perceived everything, or just older is now younger, or younger is now older, something, something's weird there, right? Well, I think with the classic rock generation, they're really setting the benchmarks every step, of, every step of the way. Like, as you mentioned, like in 1990, the idea of a rock star being 45, that, that seemed pretty old. And I remember the first time I saw the Rolling Stones when I was 16, it was on the Voodoo Lounge Tour, and Mick Jagger, I think, was about 50 years old. And my thought at that time was that I had to see the Stones in 94, because they obviously weren't going to tour after that. You know, they were obviously going to be too old to continue as a band, and they were going to be over. And of course, it's 25 years later, and the Stones are still on the road. And every step of the way, they, that generation has sort of redefined how you can be as a rock star, how you can now be a 60 or 70 year old person on stage with, with a guitar, and it makes sense. But obviously, Mother Nature takes hold at some point. You know, either people retire, which we're starting to see more of, you know, Paul Simon is just, he's starting a retirement tour this month. 
Elton John announced his retirement. You see rock stars either starting to step back or getting you know advanced in age and, and, and uh, sadly passing away. It's funny because due to the nature of my job, I tend to discuss this with some of these people themselves with some frequency. Yeah. And I was looking at an interview I did with Mick Jagger because we have a new uh, Mick Jagger special edition coming up. And in the interview, I asked him, how much do you think about mortality? Because your fans look at you on stage and it seems like you're going to live forever. And his answer was two words. I'm not. (laughs) And it's also, you know, and he had a moment at Desert Trip, he told me, where he realized that there's the giant, giant stage. And he was, as is his want, running around on it. And then he suddenly realized that no one else, none of the other headliners did so. And he was like, why is it even there? Is it there just for me? And also, you know, he admitted that he was thinking, how long can I run across the giant stage? And when I can't run across the giant stage, what does that mean? You know, and, and he said, there must be something in the middle where you're not running, but you're not just standing still either. So that, that's about as far as Mick has taken his uh, mortality. But, but you're absolutely right, of course. And to take a step back... The idea of classic rock is a fraught and weird one, as you kind of get into in your book. It is, first of all, not really a genre. It's a radio format that, in our minds, has become a genre, right? Yeah, I mean, it was really something that began like in the early 80s, where radio programmers were trying to reach a certain demographic group, you know, people between the ages of, say, like, you know, 25 and 40 or something. And they found that that audience wanted to hear the music that they loved when they were younger, which was music from the 60s and 70s. And there was this generation of bands that became codified as classic rock. And they became synonymous with the term just because they were part of this radio format and just they were just played all the time, like the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, the Beatles, the Stones, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. And for someone like me, who started sort of consciously listening to the radio as a young music fan when I was, say, 11, 12, 13 years old in the like late 80s, early 90s. You know, for me, as far as I was concerned, classic rock had always been there. You know, <laughs> it was a genre that had always existed because I didn't know that this radio format was new. As, as long as I'd listened to the radio, it, it had been there. So for, I think, music fans of my generation, there was a certain sort of mythology aspect to that generation of bands that you could listen to pop music radio and the artist on that station would change over every, say, two or three years. But the bands on classic rock radio, they were always there. You know, there was <laughs> permanence to them. And in the book, you know, I, I talk about Joseph Campbell, you know, the, the, the famous uh, mythologist who talked about, you know, the hero's journey, the idea of, of, of uh, the story about someone going out into the world and, and having these adventures and how that's a recurring myth that exists in all different kinds of cultures. And he also talks about this idea of like a, of a, of a big oak tree. You know, he uses this metaphor about how myths are like these trees that we see in our backyard that have always been there, and there's a permanence to them, and it kind of connects us to our own past. And um, I think that's what classic rock has been for a lot of people. I know that is true for me. Like, you know, it's like the bands that you sort of grow up with, that you, that were young when you were young, those are the bands that kind of get older and they change. But like Led Zeppelin, to me, they're always going to be Led Zeppelin in 1971. I understand that Robert Plant and Jimmy Page are now in their 70s. But when I think of that band, I think of how they were then. And and there's a permanence to it. And they are almost like comic book characters. 
know, in a way. Well, you made a great point that, you know, Weezer, Pinkerton, that can never be a legendary album to you because you bought it in real time. It's, and it might be to someone who's younger now. like someone, Exactly. Someone who's like 20 years old and loves emo music and hears about Pinkerton being a touchstone record in that genre. Weezer to them is classic rock. You know, I, I recently wrote about Julian Casablancas and his new band, The Voids, and I heard from like 20-year-old people, you know, 20 who love The Voids, and they think of The Strokes as being a, a classic rock band and Julian Casablancas almost being like a Lou Reed figure, which he's not to me because I remember when he was just starting out. You know, I, I, I'm not going to have that sort of mythology about him in the same way someone younger is. But, and it's also confusing because, you know, people associate classic rock with the Rolling Stone canon when, in fact, Led Zeppelin, as everyone also knows, even though they can't keep it straight in their head, was actually in great conflict with Rolling Stone for many years. It's all very confusing. And, and of course, classic rock radio format is, is the result of, like, the most stultified version of what had once been the most free form of FM radio. You right. know, it, it's it's this horrible sort of like chopping off the most obvious parts of what had once been this beautiful flourishing of playing anything you want, playing whole sides of albums. And so that's kind of tragic. And then the other funny thing I, I really like when you talk about the, the, the sort of lower tier of quote unquote classic rock bands who actually aren't that classic at all, like Styx, Ariel right. Speedwagon. A lot of that is more, there's a regional differences between classic rock where you were in the midwest and i, I think there was a little bit more of the sticks ario speedway stuff right. in, involved there yeah because i know like where i lived you know if you heard lou reed on classic rock radio it was walk on the wild side and, and that's about it yeah I, I imagine in new york you probably heard more of his stuff maybe you heard you know here and there coney island baby tracks or whatever yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah to get back to what you were saying um about, you know, sort of the Rolling Stone canon. I, like, when I was growing up and learning about music, you know, my main two avenues were classic rock radio and um, music criticism. Like, I would read old issues of Rolling Stone, and I read the Rolling Stone record guide. That was like a Bible to me. The, the one, especially the second edition with the blue cover uh, that Dave Marsh edited. Uh-huh. That was like a huge one. And then there was one that came out in the early 90s. Um, that had like a sort of like a red, it was like a checker cover type thing. But like, I still have that book, even though like the binding is like worn out. Um, but you know, it yeah, was I like, can quote I, you. Someone referred to the blues as a mix of misery and misogyny in that book. And that really annoyed me at the time. I remember. So yes, I can. And I remember being annoyed, like how in the blue edition, the, uh, the reviewer hated Black Sabbath. Like he gave all the Black Sabbath albums, like one star, except Paranoid got two stars. And, uh, you know, that's another band that became pretty influential, obviously, uh, after uh, their initial run in the 70s. But They um, are, and, but, and yet I somewhat dispute their place in classic rock as such. But then that's what's interesting is we could actually spend... We're, we, we've established that classic rock doesn't really exist. Now we could argue about what is in this genre that doesn't exist. Right. Uh, it, it, and, it, you know, it's, we, we did a previous episode that you were on about whether rock is dead, and we couldn't even... None of us could agree with what rock is, let alone whether it's dead. And classic rock is even harder. However, I would posit, and reading your book reminded me of stuff from my own adolescence, is that there is a sort of irreducible core of, for what, for lack of a better word, we could probably call 
classic rock and is sort of the teenage classic rock canon is what I would say. And I, and I love that you pointed to a couple books, the, uh, the Doors book, No One Here Gets Out Alive, uh, the yeah. Jim Morrison biography, which, you know, it's, it paints him <laughs> as, you know, the, the, this, um, you know, rebel myth. And right. Hammer of the Gods, the Led Zeppelin book, which, uh, you know, is full of <laughs> dubiously reported anecdotes, uh, right. and s- sometimes possible biological impossibilities. Uh, right. And, and, and so, so we're talking about The Doors, Led Zeppelin, let's say The Who, The Stones, right. you know, The Beatles, but The Beatles, like, again, it, it weirdly aren't, are sort of The Beatles standing apart from classic rock in a way. You know what I mean? They're, they're just The Beatles. Well, uh, like, one of the things I get into in the book, because again, you know, and I don't know, this might be harder for like younger people to relate to, but when I was first getting into music, like the radio was like the only way to hear new music. So that really became what I studied. And when I, you know, I started out listening to pop radio and then I moved over to classic rock, and what always intrigued me as a young music fan was the distinction between oldies radio and classic rock radio, because there was definitely a line of delineation there that, like, you know, oldies would play Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly, which you would think, okay, what, what is more classic than Chuck Berry? You know, like, why wouldn't that be on classic rock radio? But there was definitely an idea that classic rock radio kind of begins in the late 60s when rock becomes a thing separate from rock and roll, like sort of the early rock and roll. So, like with the, and, and you mentioned the Beatles and like how you can hear She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand on oldies radio and then on classic rock radio, it kind of starts with Sgt. Pepper. That's right. And that's right. Maybe maybe Revolver. But yeah, yes, it's it's never, they would very, very seldom play it like I Want to Hold Your Hand or Love Me Do or something that would throw off the format. The, the, this one band, uh, somehow it's clear what's classic rock and what isn't. But let's talk about the beginning of classic rock, Stephen, or at least the beginning of a version of classic rock, which was often, uh, for better or worse, in, in a suburban bedroom in the 80s and 90s, I think, and uh, often involved uh, Jim Morrison, didn't it? Yeah, for me, Jim Morrison was uh, definitely one of the early rock stars that I was obsessed with. And, you know, I think if you were a kid interested in classic rock in the early 90s, like I was, a lot of that had to do with The Doors, the the uh, Oliver Stone film The Doors, <laughs> <laughs> which um, people don't really talk about that movie anymore. Maybe for the best, but uh, because it's a very you know pretentious film, very well, sort of like mock. Well, let's mythology. take a, let's take a second and and talk about this scene where a dying Native American man's soul is shown to enter the body of a young Jim Morrison, literally in the movie. So yeah. that just to get in case for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, that is a scene in the movie. Yeah, based uh, on based on truth, I think. I think there's no <laughs> doubt that that actually happened. <laughs> That's right. It, you know, Oliver Stone would never meddle with the facts, so he was just trying to you know represent what happened exactly. And there's nothing problematic about that, of course. Uh, no, not at all. And you know, and Jim Morrison, you know, I, you know, that movie I think is a great example of like a lot of what the book is about, which is exploring the um, I guess the sex, drugs, and rock and roll mythology and the idea that uh, by doing a lot of doing a lot of drugs and having a lot of like dirty you know sex and all that stuff that is going to that's like the the bridge to enlightenment that that is how you end up with these great artistic breakthroughs that uh, it'll make you a, you know a great rock star basically and that is at the core I think when we talk when we think about classic rock that's a big part of it and that's really kind of become 
an anachronism in the modern era. I mean, we do not glamorize drug use anymore, you know, I think for the better. Um, or, or this sort of like white male fantasy of just like sleeping with lots of women and, and not having any kind of obligation to see, them. See, the thing is, though, in, in hip hop, we do kind of glamorize drug use, you know, and someone like Future definitely glamorizes drug use. But and and all the, the Xanax addicted SoundCloud rappers are attempting to. But, you know, it, it's perhaps more conflicted. Right. Yeah, there's a lot about Jim Morrison that I think is appealing to someone who actually has never had sex or has never actually done <laughs> drugs. Like, there's, there's, there's a very kind of romantic edge to what he's doing. And to get back to what you were saying about there's being a degree of, I guess, drug glamorization still happening in hip-hop, I think that is true to a degree, but I don't know if there's the same sort of, like, like mythos applied to it. I, I, I feel like when, when, when Future talks about it in a song, it, it's more just about sort of like getting obliterated. You know, that, that, that's more of almost like a 70s rock type thing. Like when in the 60s, I think there was still this idea that like if you took psychedelics, that there was like an intellectual it's element less, to it. It's, well, the chance, chance the rapper's acid rap. But yes, I would say the Xanax ethos, yeah, is a little bit more like... The, the the Xanax and Lean ethos is a little bit more like '70s Quaaludes, if, right. is, I think, is what you're getting at. Or like, um, yeah, like when Aerosmith or something, like the Blue Army, like the, like that era of like arena rock, where it was that or that Days Been Confused idea, like where you know we're just doing drugs all day long because it's fun to do, not because <laughs> we think that we're going to meet God if we do this. You know, I think that was an idea that percolated in the '60s and then kind of gradually fell away and just turned into like wanton. Decadence. Where do you stand on the Doors currently, and then we'll move on to the rest of Classic Rock. You know, I'm 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 pro Doors. I mean, <laughs> the thing with the Doors and me is that I love so much about Classic Rock. I, I love it all. I love the mythology of it, even the ridiculous parts of it. And the Doors to me epitomize a lot of that mythology. It, Jim Morrison was in way in a way an architect of a lot of that stuff. And as much as I can laugh at it, I still love it. There's still something about it that I get into, and I think there is that 14-year-old kid in me that can listen to that music, that can listen to the end, you know, or break on through or any of those songs and feel the mystery of it, or, or at least reconnect with the, the part of myself that once saw a lot of sort of profound statements in that music. <laughs> anyway, Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, for me, you know, and, and I, I seldom, it, <laughs> seldom would it, admit to any of this, but, you know, for me as, as like an eighth grader or whatever, that was definitely a doorway to, to classic rock. I remember hearing the acapella intro to uh, Black Dog and, and just being like, this is from another dimension. That for some reason, it just really, really, really got to me. I don't know. What was your kind of uh, breakthrough with, with, uh, with those guys? I, I mean, again, it was from listening to Classic Rock Radio and hearing all the songs from Led Zeppelin IV uh, on the station and realizing that that was the pivotal album for them, or at least that's how Classic Rock Radio sold it to me. Because like, every song on that record was on the radio. And similar to you, I mean, they were, were definitely one of the gateway bands for me. Led Zeppelin IV and Dark Side of the Moon were the two big albums that I fell in love with from the Classic Rock canon. And I think with Led Zeppelin, you know, Again, we can kind of go back to some of the questionable white dude fantasies that animate classic rock, and I, and I talk a lot about that in my book. But, you know, as a 13-year-old kid who had not experienced anything, you know, I, I was very innocent. Led Zeppelin to me just represented, like, the exhilaration and the fear of adulthood. You know, like, these guys seem to have done everything that I ever wanted to do. They seem to be as cool as I ever wanted to be. 
they sounded amazing. You know, they were mysterious. Like, you didn't understand what the album cover was about. You didn't understand why they were writing a song called Black Dog. Like, he doesn't say Black Dog in the song. Like, why is it called that? You know, a song like When the Levee Breaks, which, you know, I didn't know about the blues roots of that song when I was 13 years old. To me, it just sounded like this bottomless, heavy statement from hell. You know, there was just something about it that just was so staggering and larger than life to me. It it, it seemed eternal. It seemed like it had always been there. Even though I was only 20 years old at that time, 20 years old to me was like, might as well have been 2,000 years old. Let's hear the uh, intro to Black Dog for a second, then we'll continue. Hey, hey, Mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. So you know he's he's you know just singing about sex, but it doesn't sound like any human version of sex. You know, it's like that's why I I, I was amused to hear you say that it, you know they seem to be singing about adulthood and experience because they actually seem to be singing about about something that that is is just nothing about Led Zeppelin is ever relatable in any way. They sing about whether it's like Vikings or or, or just totally ripping off the hobbit or whatever it, it has it has nothing to do with human experience and i think that's what's what's awesome but at the same time yes like they're, they're projecting this air of 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 i don't know knowledge of something i guess the, of alistair crowley apparently right. right well you know and when i say adulthood i don't mean like they're <laughs> Actual talking about getting a job and paying a mortgage and <laughs> raising a family to me what i mean is like they projected power they, they projected mm. worldliness they, they projected again like they had just done all the things that I wanted to do and I was curious about, like have sex, do drugs, all these awesome adult things that, you know, like in, when I write about the doors in the book, I make the analogy that listening to their music, it's like laying in your bed at night and seeing the light under the door and knowing that adults are doing adult things on the other side of the door. You know, like there's a party going on and you know you can't go in there because you're a kid, but you really want to go in there. And classic rock was, was like that to me in a lot of ways. It was like it's 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 the party going on on the other side of the door. All the illicit things that you want to do and you're curious about, but you can't because you're a kid. And listening to like Black Dog, it was like eavesdropping on that. You know, uh, and it, it it just totally drew me in. I don't know what was going on under the doors in your house, but yeah, there wasn't. Uh, I, th- I think my imagination was taking uh, hold at that point when I was a kid. I don't think it was as interesting as what's going on in Led Zeppelin 4, but in my mind it was. There's a lot of strange things about Led Zeppelin when you kind of look about them in the abstract that, that he was they're projecting all this sort of, uh, you know, power white male power or whatever and and yet his way of doing it was to sing as much like a woman as possible which is is pretty interesting when you think about it well and also just how nerdy led zeppelin is which did not really like cross my mind it seems really obvious now like all the lord of the rings stuff and you know talking about vikings and all that you know trying to explain led zeppelin i think to someone who's never heard them before you know, that there were these four British guys that were obsessed with American blues, but they were also ex- obsessed with J.A.R.R. Tolkien, and that they, you know, were sort of integrating all these different influences that don't really make sense on paper, and yet when you hear the music, it's the most visceral-sounding music that there is. You know, they were able to sell a lot of different things that, like, when I break it down and, and deconstruct it, 
it's like why did I why did I think this was powerful? Why did I think this was cool? You know, because if you, you take you it know, apart, why because it, of, because of because of the drums, <laughs> right? And the drum sound and the riffs and this dude shrieking over it and you know John Paul Jones was definitely doing something too. And, and, and well, I think it was also the mystery yeah. of the band. There was a lot yeah. of ambiguity. There was also again you mentioned this before, Hammer of the Gods, uh, the Stephen Davis book. Yes, which was a very formative read for me at a at a at an impressionable age. And I will say that the title of my book is a tip of the cap to Stephen Davis. I, yeah, I'd like to think of this as an unofficial sequel to Hammer of the Gods. But, uh, you know, just the stories in that book. And, uh, you know, in, in, in that book, as you said, there's a lot of questionable things in it. I don't know how much of that is actually true, but in a way it didn't matter because it was about the mythology of Led Zeppelin. Well, if, is, if I remember correctly, and I have not read it for many years, but one of the fascinating things about that book, lo- looking back, and this goes into why was this music and this you know mythology so attractive to teenagers who were decades removed from it, is I believe that book takes it as a fact that Jimmy Page's dabbling, alleged dabbling in the occult formed a, a curse over the band. And he also I- implies, I, I haven't read it in a while either, but... You know, it's it's implied that Plant Page and Joan and, and Bonham sold their souls to the devil. That there was like an actual pact with the devil that, that John Paul Jones like didn't do it because he was like the more reasonable one, I guess. But uh, yeah, that there was like, an actual pact. Like when I read Hammer of the Gods, I didn't know about the legend of Robert Johnson. Like he talks about Robert Johnson going out of the crossroads in that book, and I'd never heard that story before. Uh, you know, they talked about backward masking in that book about how people thought Led Zeppelin was putting satanic messages in the in, in, in backwards in Stairway to Heaven. And I remember the year after I read Hammer of the Gods, someone came to my church and actually told us that story. So when I, when that happened, I was like, "Oh, Hammer of the Gods is true," because <laughs> someone actually is talking about this in my church. They're afraid of Led Zeppelin, and it just told, it had the opposite effect on me. They were trying to scare people away from Led Zeppelin, and it totally just brought me more toward them. No, we, we, we were taught by this terrible book that <laughs> we were taught that this music was literally magic, that they had harnessed, you know, the dark forces of the universe rather than, you know, vaguely plagiarizing old <laughs> blues songs. Right. You know? But that, you know, so it, it was, you know, if you're 13, 14, and I remember a dude at summer camp who also was like a Fangoria reader sharing a lot of this information with me for the first time. That was probably who handed me, come to think of it, my first copy of Hammer the gods it was all one thing it was like horror movies and you know and so morrison was like a was a shaman you know and and led zeppelin were magicians you know right. so so it was, it was just awesome it was literally it was it was it was actually got into you know pulp fantasy you know talk about larger than life these were like you know these were magical superheroic figures and then you had someone like hendrix whose very appearance and and playing seemed you know really was magic. Jimi Hendrix was mind-bogglingly talented, you know, and, and, and he put it all together. It's it's no wonder, but I do think the Doors and Zeppelin have a special place in this sort of true out-there mythology stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I said this earlier, but it really is true that, you know, like for me, like, you know, I didn't read comic books as a kid. I didn't read, you know, The Avengers or whatever, but I read Hammer of the Gods and I read No One Here Gets Out Alive. And like, those were about comic book characters. I mean, they turned these real people into, you know, these sort of fanciful figures that you would fantasize about and you would, you know, imagine them having adventures and stuff. And so, you know, to me, they really were, I mean, like Robert, like I interviewed Robert Plant recently uh, for my podcast and, uh, you know, I don't normally get nervous for interviews, but I was 
pretty freaked out to talk to Robert Plant because that's like interviewing Batman. To right. Me. And I'm right. like, this is a real guy. And of course, you talk to him, and he's like a very normal, like easy to talk to person. But in my mind, he was like the golden god. He was the guy that I saw in all these black and white photos uh, from the 70s. So that's why it's so hard, I think, for a lot of people when someone like David Bowie passes away. It's like, how can you imagine Ziggy Stardust passing away? You know, it's just inconceivable to even think of him as a human being, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, you know he's a human being, but to be reminded of his mortality in that way, in that very real way, uh, I think it's difficult to reconcile. Do you remember when, when did things start to broaden out from classic rock for you? Well, I mean, classic rock was always like, it was never like my only thing. Yeah. You know? And the thing about growing up in the 90s is that if you were into Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Smashing Pumpkins and Soundgarden and all those bands, they were, there was a very clear line between them and classic rock. Yes. And uh, sometimes it was explicit, like Pearl Jam made a record with Neil Young and uh, Nirvana covered The Man Who Sold the World on the Unplugged record. But, you know, there was there was definitely a sense of a lineage there. So, like, there's not a big... So, so it wasn't that hard to make the leap from alternative rock to classic rock and to almost think of them as contemporary-type things. It's like, I like the Beatles and I like Pearl Jam, you know? And that's not that... It didn't seem as wide, maybe, as it does now, where you listen to, you know, pop music, and there's not a lot of obvious connections to classic rock history, even though, like, Beyoncé does sample The Doors, or, like, Frank Ocean had a song where he sampled Hotel California... And then Don Henley threatened to sue him, and he couldn't keep doing it. But And also, you know, uh, some of those people kept were still somewhat active uh, in, in putting out new music, and they, were, and they were still visible. Like, you know, Neil Young had a great decade in the 90s, and he was basically like a, a, a contemporary artist. Or like Tom Petty had a great decade in the 90s. Uh, Springsteen wasn't as good in the 90s, but he was still visible. And, of course, Bob Dylan had a renaissance then. Um, so I think growing up at that time, there was maybe it felt more. It, it didn't feel maybe as distant. It, as and it and that's because it, it wasn't. Again, these guys were in their forties, which is it's so hard to wrap one's head around that. It is an interesting thing. Uh, the Bruce Springsteen in the nineties thing is is interesting, you know, and as you said, it's funny that you said when he did his unplugged, which wasn't really unplugged, but that you had to hide the fact from your friends that you were excited about it. Yeah, I mean. It's weird to talk about this now because I feel like Springsteen above, maybe even like Bob Dylan, is the most revered artist of that era. Like when I interview musicians who are like in their early 20s, they always cite Bruce Springsteen as an inspiration. Like that, the, he, His status as, like a, as a hero has transcended generations. Uh, but in the 90s, it's like the one decade where it wasn't that cool to like Springsteen. And I think it's has maybe to do something with the ethos of that era, which, uh, you know, there was a lot of sort of arm's-length irony going on in the 90s. Um, you know, you could look at a band like Pearl Jam, and certainly there's a lot of earnestness there and, and a lot of straightforward emotion. But you know, that generally was not considered cool in the 90s. And uh, Bruce has many great qualities about him, but there's not a lick of irony in anything he does. And, you know, and I think he's funny, but he's not a particularly ironic person in his stature. So I think he was just kind of perceived as like this 80s guy, you know, the guy with the bandana and the big arms. I I think it's more that, honestly. I think it's that, I think it's his problem is that he had been so much bigger in the 80s than 
Tom Petty and Dylan or Neil Young. And so he, he had almost become an 80s pop star. So he was an 80s pop star in the 90s. And then it's, it, that's a dangerous place to be. But I think well, what, what you're saying is also true. Yeah, I mean, and also there was something that happened in the 90s where, you know, country music started to assume a lot of the area that used to be called Heartland Rock. You know, that's when country music kind of started to assume some of that real estate in, like, the rock empire. You know, like, you had the the rise of Garth Brooks, for instance, who was, you know, there was certainly some some strains of, of classic country music, especially now when you listen to him. He sounds more classic country than he did in the 90s, but... You know, there was sort of a, like an arena rock bombast to what he was doing. And he was, in many ways, like a mainstream rock guy. Like, what we would have associated with that in the 80s, like with music, with, with like John Mellencamp and Bob Seger. He, was, he had a lot of similarities to that kind of music. And, you know, you, it, I feel like that was the beginnings of what you see now with a lot of country people, like with Eric, like with Eric Church and even Chris Stapleton, who I feel like are essentially making Southern rock records under the guise of country music. You know, sure. I mean, they, they have a lot, of, I think, in that DNA. Um, and, and, and Bruce was a part of that. And, you know, just to compare, like, you know, Springsteen physically to someone like Kurt Cobain, who was this sort of small, frail person who wore, like, lots of sweaters to bulk himself up. And Bruce was, like, this sort of He-Man type guy. He was a very masculine-type rock star, which wasn't really hip, I think, at that time. Um it, it's funny because at the end of the decade, that's when he reunited with the Street Band, and that really rejuvenated his career, and he's not, he hasn't looked back since then. Um, but there was a moment, I don't know if you remember this, but Bruce performed with the Wallflowers. Yeah, I totally reject your entire thesis about this, but I think it's a cute idea. Just to quickly summarize, your, your idea is that Bruce had a very big moment when he performed with the Wallflowers at the VMAs in 97, which I remember very clearly, and it was a cool thing. But the truth is he had watched the Murder Incorporated video from like two years before that, and that's a live East Street Band performance at Tramps, and it's it's way better than the Wallflowers performance, and it's two years earlier so i i don't i, yeah, I, I don't buy is, it but you know it's, well, it's a cute idea but the difference is that more people saw the wallflowers performance and there was something about seeing bruce on that show he looked really good he sounded great i think it reminded people that he could still be that certain kind of rock guy you know because before that like in the public consciousness he was making sort of scaled down records like he made the ghost of tom joad which is an amazing record i think it is um but you know in terms of like the arena rock Bruce, like the big time rock guy, like he hadn't really done that for a long time. I mean, after Born in the USA, he does Tunnel of Love, another great record, but it's kind of scaled back. And then he makes Human Touch and Lucky Town, and I think Lucky Town's a good record. Human Touch, I don't think, is a good record, but definitely a period of confusion for him. I get what you're saying about the Mortar Incorporated video, but like. I don't think most people saw that. I feel like the Wallflowers thing. So you're saying it's not so much in Bruce it's himself that, or more that the uh, youth audience got to see Bruce rock out, which I, which is fair, you know. And it was, I would say, to go with you on that point, it is, you know, one of the things that Neil Young did so well. And, and again, you get it. What why Neil and and Tom Petty had su- such a great '90s. But one of the things that Neil did so well was when he appeared with Pearl Jam at the, I believe, it was the '94 VMAs, and that was like, I mean, I remember kids who were like 
did not like old rock, did not like Neil Young, didn't even know who he was, but loved Pearl Jam, uh, being really blown away by that. So this was Bruce sort of taking that spot and being like, hey, I can rock with a young band, you know? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think Neil Young and Tom Petty, they just felt more like they were contemporary artists at that time. Like, they integrated better with the music scene. And Neil Young did that in explicit ways, like when he did Sleeps with Angels, and he wrote that song about Kurt Cobain. Of course, Kurt Cobain quoted... Neil Young in his suicide note, you know, so that's sort of like a, an interesting wrinkle there. And then, you know, and Tom Petty, you know, Dave Grohl playing with him on Saturday Night Live soon after Kurt Cobain's death, you know, uh, was a big thing, I think, for people to see. Well, uh, like you said, Tom, Tom Petty just was, you know, he was writing hits and making really good videos, and that's, and, and then somehow that carried him through as a contemporary artist, like, through the 90s, all through the 90s, you know, he was still, which is crazy. And I think he... He had more of an everyman quality than I think Bruce did. Again, I think Bruce just had a physicality to him that people at the time associated with the 80s. You know, there was something about him, I think, to people that just seemed like it was Reagan-era type music, which which is not a fair thing to say. Again, like, I love Bruce, but as someone who grew up at that time, that was the impression that this was like old, this was an old guy. Whereas with Petty, even though he came from roughly the same period, I just think he had more of like an unassuming, almost anti-rock star thing about him that was more compatible with the alt-rock era, on top of writing amazing songs. Well, it's like the, the old guy who's really high can always hang with the young people, and I think it's, a, <laughs> I think it's an example of that like the, the Petty transcended things just by being like so high all the time. Right. Oh. Another kind of interesting yeah. parallel you could say is that like Bruce's big sort of album comeback was The Rising, which of course was the 9-11 record, and I think there was something about him and also U2, in the early 2000s, because U2, of course, you know, they have Octune Baby, but then they had a pretty rough 90s in the second half of it. You know, there was something about the early sort of aughts that I think was more amenable to both of those guys. It may, you know, True. Like, I think they both had a hard time with the climate and the tone of the 90s, because they were both earnest arena rockers trying to make their way in an era where that wasn't really in fashion. And then in the early 2000s, people wanted that again, and they were sort of allowed to be themselves. And I, I think that was true for both of them at that time. I think that's true. You have a scene towards the end of the book where I think you see Hollywood vampires, and you, you suddenly <laughs> realize that, like, man, you're done with that old-time religion. You just can't take it anymore. Describe that a little bit before we go. Yeah, I went to this uh, festival in upstate Wisconsin. Uh, it, it was called Rock Fest, and it was a lot of, uh, you know, sort of, I guess like mainstream radio rock bands like Five Finger Death Punch and, and, and bands like that, bands that I don't particularly have an affinity for. And then there was this band, Hollywood Vampires, which is a band with Alice Cooper, Johnny Depp. Um, Duff McKagan was in the band, but then he got called up to Guns N' Roses, so he wasn't at the show I saw. And then Joe Perry was in the band too, but he had recently uh, fallen ill. I think, I forget exactly what his issue was, but he had like passed out at a show earlier on that tour and he wasn't able to perform ill 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 is a classic rock euphemism continue <laughs> hey i'm just trying to be uh responsible with my word choice here um but yeah i mean you know they were playing the concept of that band is that they play covers of songs by dead musicians that alice cooper used to drink with on the sunset strip so it felt like a very sort of las vegas review of classic rock history and it was it was depressing to see it frankly and it it was sort of like the least attractive version of like all the rock cliches that i grew up 
glamorizing. You know, the idea of the tattooed, cool, uh, hard-drinking, you know, womanizing rock star. You know, seeing that band... Uh, it was, it was like the cliche, that, the glamorous that cliche was, turned into a horrible caricature. That you know? was that was the journey to the end of classic rock. So we're out of time. <laughs> Stephen Hyden, thanks so much. Check out his book, Twilight of the Gods: A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. This has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We will be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106 at 1 p.m. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. I do read them and we do appreciate them. And we'll see you next week. As always, thanks for listening. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.